I've often said that it's very easy to uh, misinterpret or to misread situations and uh, keeping in mind this baby dedication today. Children are often the guilty culprits of such uh, misinterpretation. And what's interesting, I was reminded of a couple of stories that I thought you'd appreciate as they uh, lead us into the direction that we're going this morning. But there was one particular Sunday morning that the pastor noticed a little boy standing in the back of the foyer of the church. And he was standing there for a long period of time and he was looking up at a plaque that was on the wall. And he was looking up in silence and he was observing and he was taking a look at it and he couldn't really figure out what was going on. The pastor came over and said, Johnny, what, um, what are you thinking about? He said, well, pastor, um, what's, what's that plaque for? And uh, the pastor looked at him and said, well, that's for, for all the men who died in the service. And Johnny stood there for a little longer. He's thinking a little bit. And, and finally he said, um, was that the 8.30 or 10.30 service? <laughs> You know, we've uh, we've all been in services like that, haven't we? And uh, table for two. And uh, unfortunately, many of us can relate to that story. There's also the second story I thought was kind of cute, and that is a little girl says to her grandpa, she says, Grandpa, can I sit on your lap? And he said, well, sure, you can sit on my lap. Come over here, honey. And as she's sitting on her granddad's lap, she says, Grandpa, can you make a sound like a frog? He says, it sound like a frog. Well, yeah, I can make a sound like a frog. The girl says, oh, Grandpa, Grandpa, please, please make a sound like a frog. He said, well, honey, I I can make a sound like a frog, but, I mean, why why are you so excited about me making a sound like a frog? And uh, she said, and she looked at him and she said, uh, well, she was all excited. She said, because Grandma said, when you croak, we're going to Disney World. Wow. I think that was a little secret between Grandma and her. But the, the point is this. Uh, misreading situations can certainly be funny. Um, and they have a funny side. But mis- misreading or misinterpreting the Bible can have very tragic consequences. You know, the Bible speaks of matters of life and death. The Bible talks of right or wrong, good and bad. The Bible talks of curses and blessings. And the Bible speaks very specifically of a period of time which is no time at all, and that is eternity. So it's very important that we consider what the Bible has to say in many respects. And as I studied this se- uh, for the session this week, I was once again reminded of the importance of diligent study. Uh, the words of the Apostle Paul to that young pastor, Timothy, continue to echo through my head where he said to him, Be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a workman who does not need to be shamed, handling accurately the word of truth. And if you'll turn with me in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 10, we're going to pick up where we left off and we were looking at the final revelation and vision that was given by God to Daniel and it'll take us through the end of our study in the book of Daniel. And it is a passage that's not for the weak of heart or the lazy, but one in which a diligent study will will reap huge rewards. And in Daniel chapter 10, I want to go back to verse 10 and take it through chapter 11. But we find these words and I'll bring you up to date if you weren't here, up to speed if you weren't here last time, but the Bible, um, we're told in Daniel 10, 10, we read these words. It says, Then behold, a hand touched me and sent me trembling on my knees and uh, on my hands and knees. If you recall, Daniel had a revelation of the risen Christ. 
in all of His glory, resurrected in all of His glory. We saw His glory and His majesty. We saw His purity and His sensuality. Everything revolves around Him. All of God's plans revolves around the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And we see Him after His resurrection and we see Him in all of His glory, the glory that He had, the pre-incarnate glory before He took on flesh, the glory that He revealed in Matthew 17 when He took that veil or the curtain back and the disciples, Peter, James, and John, saw the glory of God and all of His majesty. We see that Jesus Christ is the majestic King of kings and Lord of lords and He has been given a name above every name that at His name every knee will bow on heaven and earth and under the earth and every tongue will confess that He's Lord to the glory of God. And I'll talk more about that because our culture doesn't really understand that Jesus. We look at Him as a man or as a person, a great teacher, but the Bible clearly teaches that He is God. He said it to His disciples when He said, Hey, if you have seen Me, you've seen the Father, for I am the Father and One. And as we look at this passage, he had seen this revelation and he fell on his face and he began to tremble before this majestic picture of the resurrected Christ. The same trembling and fear that even John had in the, in the revelation of Christ that we see in the book of Revelation, where when he saw the majestic King of kings and Lord of lords, he fell on his face and he worshipped him and he was in awe of him. The disciple whom leaned against, who leaned against the breast of Christ at the Last Supper, the disciple whom Jesus said, the disciple whom he loved, the disciple whom Jesus left the care of his mother to, that probably one of the closest human relationships that he had. He would probably have felt privileged in that he was a close buddy or friend. But when he saw Jesus for who he really was, he dropped on his face and he worshipped him. It says, And behold, a hand touched me and sent me trembling on my hands and knees. And then this messenger of God, this angel said, O Daniel, man of high esteem, understand the words that I'm about to tell you and stand upright, for I have now been sent to you. And when he had spoken this word to me, I stood up trembling. And he went on to say, Do not be afraid, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart on understanding this and on humbling yourself before your God, your words were heard. And I have come in a response to your words. That's a wonderful promise that each of us has if you think about it. For those who are truly seeking God, for those who really want to know the truth of God, for those who are maybe today you're thinking, hey, you know what, I don't really understand God. I don't know what this is all about. I don't know if I die, if there's a place called heaven, hell, otherwise. I'm not really sure. But God, I really want to know what a tremendous prayer that is of humility that God will never despise. If you consider back in your own life, for those of you who have come into a relationship with God by believing in Christ, the hunger that you had to know the truth, God brought a messenger to share with you the truth. Romans chapter 10 says, for those who really want to know God, that God really wants to know us. And He really wants to know you. And He will send somebody across your path with the, with the words that are truth. And that's exactly what He does. How wonderful it is to see the feet of those who are bearing glad tidings or good news or the gospel of Christ. That for those who really want to believe, when you hear the truth of what God has to say, you will humble yourself and you will believe. All the rest is smoke. All the rest is just talk. All the rest is, I really want to know. If you really want to know, when you hear the truth, you will accept it and you will embrace it. Otherwise, you're making excuses for your disobedience and your pride and your arrogance before God. Well, if I hear the truth, I'll believe it, but not till then. Hey, you know what? And I'll guarantee you, if that's, a hum if that's not your spirit, is not one of, uh, of, uh, of humility, that when you hear the truth, you will still find an excuse for it. And you will reject it. But he said, I've come as response to your words. He says, but the prince of the kingdom of Persia was withstanding me for 21 days. Then behold, Michael, one of the chief princes or angels came to help me, for I've been left there with the king of Persia. 
And what's interesting, God reveals this spiritual warfare that takes place behind the scenes. It's later revealed in Ephesians 6 where Paul says that our warfare is not carnal. It's not a flesh and blood. It's a spiritual warfare and it's mighty. And there's principles involved, principalities and darkness and domain. And that's exactly the picture that we have taking place. There was a spiritual warfare that was taking place to try to hinder the truth from getting to Daniel so that Daniel would understand God's great love for him. But obviously God prevailed and says, Now I've come to give you an understanding of what will happen to your people in the latter days. For the vision pertains to the days yet future. Camp on that because that's specifically the purpose of God sending this information to Daniel is so that Daniel will know exactly what the people of Israel could expect in the years to come. The vision specifically pertains to Israel. It'll be for our benefit as well. But that's exactly what he's come. And he says, And when he had spoken to me according to these words, I turned my face toward the ground and became speechless once again. And behold, one who resembled a human being. We know from a, from a prior uh, chapter that one resembling a human being was Gabriel in that case. It's not, he's not mentioned, so it could be any angel at this point. And he says, It uh, was touching my lips, and I opened my mouth and spoke, and said to him who was standing before me, O oh, my Lord, as a result of the vision, anguish has come upon me, and I have retained no strength. And we'll see why in a second. For how can such a servant of my Lord talk with such as my Lord? And as for me, there remains just now no strength in me, nor has any breath been left in me. What he had seen, this picture of, of the future, left him breathless. It left him without any strength. It took all the strength out of him. In fact, we're told that his, his, even his complexion changed. The pallor of his skin uh, changed to the point where he almost looked like death. It says, then this one who was with the human appearance touched me again and strengthened me. And he said, O man of high esteem, do not be afraid. Peace with you. Take courage and be courageous. Now, as soon as he spoke to me, I received strength. And he said, May my Lord, and I and said, May my Lord speak, for you have strengthened me. And he says, Then he said, Do you understand why I've come to you? But I shall now return to fight against the prince of Persia, so I am going forth, and behold, the prince of Greece is about to come. However, I will tell you what is inscribed in the writing of the truth. Yet there is no one who stands firmly with me against these forces except Michael, your prince. And he says, and in the first year of Darius the Mede, I arose to be an encouragement and a protection for him. If you know back in Daniel chapter 5, we're told as Darius took over in chapter 6, that God sent an angel probably to minister to Darius the night that he had thrown Daniel into the lion's den. It was a night where he was mourning and fasting. It was a night of tremendous anguish in his life because he had, he had basically been tricked into signing a law that he, was, uh, that he had to uphold or he would be subject to the same consequences. So he throws Daniel in the lion's den and we're told that that evening he wrestled until sun, sunrise and then he ran to see if God had delivered him. It's possible at that point that God had sent an angel to Darius to comfort him, to, to, uh, to encourage him that everything was going to be okay, that God was in control. You know, the Bible teaches very specifically that we have guardian angels or angels of protection that minister to God's people. They're ministering servants. And uh, unfortunately, they don't represent, uh, they're not represented real well in Hollywood, but the Word of God represents them quite well. In fact, one of the funniest commercials I've seen recently is an HBO commercial. I don't know if you've seen it. There's a guy walking down the street with his guardian angel. And uh, they're walking and he's protecting him. He pulls him out of getting hit by a bus crossing the street. He's protecting him all over the place. And then he stops in the showroom and he looks and there's a TV set in there. And the guardian angel stops and he starts watching the show that's on TV. And the guy that he's supposed to be watching or protecting continues to walk. And all of a sudden the piano drops from a, from a second floor. The movers were leaving. It drops right on top of this guy. And he sees the guy he's supposed to be watching gets killed. And he turns and he looks like this. And he starts running away, like, whoop, you know, got kind of caught up, you know, and it's a, it's, it's a hilarious commercial. It doesn't really represent theological truth very well, uh, but it's still funny nonetheless. 
But what's interesting as we look at this, uh, we go on, it says in, in uh, verse 2, it says, And now I will tell you the truth. Behold, there are three more kings are going to arise in Persia. Then a fourth will gain far more riches than all of them. And as soon as he becomes strong through his riches, he will arouse the whole empire against the realm of Greece. It says, And a mighty king will arise, and he will rule with great authority and do as he pleases. But as soon as he has arisen, his kingdom shall be broken up and parceled out toward the four points of the compass, though not to his own descendants, nor according to his authority, which he yielded, for his sovereignty will be uprooted and given to others besides them. As I mentioned last time, chapters 10 through 12 uh, all deal with the same vision, and therefore chapter 11 is a continuation of chapter 10. That's why it's important that we tie the two together as we go back and read it. But it's a very important chapter because it fills in a lot of the details of Daniel chapter 9 of the 70 weeks vision that that Daniel was shown in Daniel chapter 9. A lot of those details are filled in in this particular chapter. It's interesting also because it deals with the last of the four empires that were revealed. If you remember in uh, Daniel chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar's dream of a, a, a of uh, the coming world empires that were to come. We know that the four of them were Babylon because we're told that Babylon was the first in the successive series of empires that would arise in the future. He says, Nebuchadnezzar, you're the head of gold and Babylon is the first of those empires. Uh, we know there's been a transition from Babylon to Media Persia or actually Persia takes over exactly as God says that it would, that there would one that would come that would be stronger than the first one, uh, that the two of them would come together and ultimately Persia took over and Media was incorporated into Persia so the the Persian Empire gets all the pub, and that's what everybody remembers. So you got Babylon, you got Persia, you've got Greece, and then you have Rome. Well, in this particular vision, God is going to expand upon the fact that he's going to deal with Persia, uh, Greece, and Rome. And it fills in a lot of the details of this first vision that we see in Daniel chapter 2, also Daniel chapter 7. And so as we look at this, it's also notable that this chapter is, is that it bridges prophetically what's called what, what has been called the silent years between the Old Testament and the New Testament, where God supposedly was silent. There was no additional revelations that were given. But the reality is this, that actually the vision that we see here that take us through the end of our study is a vision that will carry us into that 400-year period of time between the Old and the New Testament, and God reveals exactly what's going to be coming up in that gap or interim period of time. And it's very important to the nation of Israel because the nation of Israel will be stuck in the middle between Syria on the north and Egypt on the south, and they will be caught in a vice between these two great powers as they battle back and forth. It is a time of tremendous suffering for the people of God. That's why the vision specifically refers to what God's people, Israel, what Daniel's people, Israel, can expect in the days to come. So all of that is given to us as we look at it. It's a remarkable passage of, of, of uh, prophecy. And it's important to understand, and I think a lot of us are confused when it comes to prophecy, but we need to understand this. There's two types of prophecy that we'll find in the Bible as we read through the Bible. There's uh, unfulfilled prophecy and there's fulfilled prophecy. Fulfilled prophecy, and prophecy, by the way, has to do with the fact that if, it, if what is written and the events that are going to take place... If what is written hasn't yet occurred at the time that they were written, then that is prophetic in nature. It talks about predicting something to come in the future or telling of a future event. And it's real important that we understand that. Because the majority of the Bible is fulfilled prophecy. It was prophetic at the time that it was written, 
But fortunately for us, we are so far along the program, we, we can in hindsight look back and see exactly what it was that God was saying at the time that it was written, even though in this case, Daniel, moved by the Spirit of God, wrote what God told him to write, because all Scripture is God-inspired or God-breathed. He wrote down what God told him to write, even though he had no clue what it, exactly it was that he was writing or how it would all come to fruition. We have the wonderful enjoyment of having hindsight to see that everything that God said would happen took place exactly as God said. Another good example of prophecy is that it involves the return or the coming of Jesus Christ. And I want you to think about that and remember it because I'm going to come back to it later. But the Bible has to say this, that there are 300 predictive prophecies concerning the first coming of Jesus Christ. All 300 of those prophecies were fulfilled specifically in the one person of Jesus Christ. So we have in the book of Daniel, which is fascinating to me, we have uh, unfulfilled prophecy and we have fulfilled prophecy. The majority of what we have is fulfilled prophecy. So there's no guesswork involved. We know historically by looking at it exactly what it was that God was saying. But sometimes we, we, we minimize the incredible miracle of that because we look back on it and say, well, what's so hard about that? Because, you know, we have all the answers. And I want to try to help you understand how absolutely incredible and miraculous that is as we go through this. Now, I think it's also fair to warn you that now, this isn't an easy passage to study. It requires a diligent study. It requires to roll up your sleeves and to dig into it. And it's going to require something that many of us aren't used to, and that is paying attention. Now, what, what, now, now I just kind of throw that out. You know, if it hits you and it, and it should have, good. Uh, you know, and if it doesn't pertain to you, then you're not offended by it. That's usually the way it works, isn't it? So if you're offended, then pay attention. And then you can say, I paid attention. And I say, good, that's all I was trying to get you to do. So as we look at this, you know, we need to roll up our sleeves. We need to take a look at it. If you're here to have your ears tickled, if you're here to be entertained, uh, you know, Branson, Missouri, we've got a guest. I know you're all about entertainment and Branson. Uh, you know, uh, hey, you know, basically what we're here to do is we're here to learn. If you're here to, to learn about God and you're serious about your walk with God or understanding of God, if you're serious about your study of the Word of God and you really want to know what God has to say as far as truth is concerned, then you'll be glad that you came. All right? And that's really all that we can offer as we go through this, because that's why we're here. So as we look at this, this prophecy concerning the people of God is, is specifically mentioned in verse 14. We see that. Now let's jump to chapter um, 11, and we'll start with verse 2. I like what the angel has to say to Daniel. He says, and now I will tell you the truth. It's a transition statement. Okay, we got all the background out of the way. We, we've dealt with all of that. You know, the, the angel told Daniel he was loved by God. He explained to him why it took him so long to get the answer to him. He explained all those things. And now there's a turning point, And here's where he begins to explain to him the vision. And he says, and now I will tell you the truth. I love that. Because the word of God is truth. The word of God is trustworthy. The word of God is reliable and has proven to be so over centuries of time. The Word of God is exactly as God says it is. It is the Word of God in written form, and it is truth. And it's important that we realize that. God cannot lie. He has revealed to us that in Him there is no darkness at all. He has revealed to us that He is not like you or I, where He will change His mind. He will say one thing and go, oops, I really didn't mean that. The wonderful thing in our culture today is to know that God is truth. And in Him there is no darkness at all. And that God will never point a bony finger in our face and say one thing 
while he was doing something else behind our back. God is truth. And he says, behold, now I tell you the truth. Behold, I like that. He says, pay attention, listen up. What I'm about to tell you is truth from the mouth of God himself. From the throne room of God, I've come with this message. Behold, consider carefully, pay attention, or as we say, listen up. Now, I know that when I was going to school, one of the things that we always liked to ask our professors or our teachers was this. Uh, is this going to be on the test? You know what I'm saying? It's like, okay, and, and if you say yes, then guess what? You paid attention. So if you want to get that mindset, if you say, to Daniel's like, uh, uh, is this going to be on the test? Uh, yes, it will be on the test. So pay attention and we'll learn something. So look what he says. He goes on and he, and he says, uh, first of all, the vision took place. Remember, the vision took place in 536 B.C. or the third year of, of Cyrus, the king of Persia. 536 B.C., right? First thing that we learn is this. I'm going to tell you the truth. Pay attention. Here we go. Three more kings are going to arise in Persia. Three more kings, in addition to Darius, are going to arise. Isn't that interesting? I mean, and, and, and uh, follow Cyrus. And he says, three more will rise. We have the benefit of hindsight. We can look back and we can tell you exactly. Cambyses was the first king that followed in 529. Pseudo-Smyrtus in 522. Uh, Darius the Great followed him. And then there was Xerxes in 486 through 465. We know. We can look at history. And those were the four Persian kings that arose. We have that historical evidence or that historical record. In 480 BC, uh, Xerxes, who is also known as Ahasuerus in the book of Esther, uh, we know that he mounted a great... A naval fleet together at Salamis and he was defeated by the Greeks that he was a man of considerable wealth the Bible says that after this time three more kings are going to rise the fourth will gain far more riches, riches than all of them isn't that fascinating? And as soon as he becomes strong through his riches, he will arouse the whole empire against the realm of Greece. When Xerxes or Ahasuerus uh, uh, developed all of the wealth that he had, the first thing he thought was, you know what? There's pressure coming from this up and upcoming uh, empire, uh, which we know is now Greece. He wasn't real sure who these people were or what they were going to do, but he used all of his money to fund a war, uh, a war chest to go after him, and he was defeated soundly by the upcoming and this new rising empire that God says would come and follow him. Xerxes was a man of tremendous wealth, exactly as the Bible says. Now, what's fascinating about this is this vision that Daniel has begins in the year 536 uh, B.C. and takes us down through 465, which is, you know, roughly about 65 years. So remember, as we look at this in the dates, that Daniel was being told something by God that would take place 56 years into the future. And that just concerns verse 2 that has to do with Persia. Which is kind of fascinating. And if that's not enough to convince the skeptics that God's word is reliable and trustworthy, he continues and goes on. Now look what he says. If that's not enough, the fact that God can tell you what's going to happen 65 years from now, there's more. He says, and a mighty king will arise and he will rule with great authority and he will do as he pleases. We already know from the visions that we've had in uh, Daniel chapter 2, Daniel chapter 7, and also Daniel chapter 8, that there will arise another empire. We know that the Babylonian Empire fell to the Persians and that the Persians would now fall to the Greeks. And that's exactly what's taking place here. He says, and, and the mighty king will arise in Daniel chapter 8, if you recall and retained what we've talked about. In Daniel 8, we're talking about the prominent horn of the goat had to do with Alexander the Great. And Alexander the Great, his kingdom arose from the Greek empire. And the Bible says that a mighty king will arise. He will rule with great authority and he will do as he pleases. Now we're down to the year 335 B.C. 
The vision took place in 536 to 335. Now we're 200 years into the future. And if that's not enough, he continues and he goes on. He says, but as soon as he has arisen, as soon as Alexander the Great reached his, his moment or his peak of authority, as soon as he has arisen, his kingdom will be broken up. If you remember from Daniel 8, it said that it would not be taken from an outside source. There would, no, no be, there would be no battle. There would be no destruction from someone else. That his kingdom would fall apart from within. We know historically that Alexander the Great, at the peak or the height of his greatness, succumbed to alcohol-related uh, disease and died. At the height of his authority, he died a broken man. It's fascinating. Now, what's the odds of that? Well, it's interesting as we go through this. As soon as he has arisen, his kingdom will be broken up. That is prophetic. And it will also be parceled out toward the four points of the compass. That is also prophetic, meaning that his empire would be divided according to north, south, east, and west. That is also prophetic. It says, not according to his own descendants, nor according to, nor according to his own descendants. That is also prophetic, meaning this. That his, he didn't have a son, he didn't have any ancestors, he didn't have anybody in his family who would arise and fill that, that vacuum that was formed after his death. Meaning that his kingdom would be divided north, south, east, and west, but it would not be given to anybody in his family. That is also prophetic. We know from history who got the kingdom. Cassander, four of his generals. Cassander, Lysimachus, Ptolemy, and uh, Seleucus. So we know historically that everything that God said would happen took place exactly as he said that it would. Which is fascinating. And nor according to his own authority, which he yielded. That the Greek empire would never be as powerful under those four generals as it was under Alexander the Great. For his sovereignty will be uprooted and given to others besides them. This is an incredible statement. Several prophetic statements that are, that are given to us in 536 B.C. Carrying us down 213 years into the future at this particular time. The word of God proved to be trustworthy and truthful, completely accurate, not only 56 years after the vision, but also down to 213 years after the vision. Now, for those of you who may be missing my point, let me share it with you in 20th century terms. I'm driving down the road, and every now and then I tune into a sports talk show that I listen to. So I'm listening to this talk show, and what I heard wasn't from the show itself that kind of struck me, but it was from the advertisements that are, that are advertised during a sports talk show. The, this particular advertisement had to do with gambling, and it had to do with the fact that people wager on professional sports. And if you were a person who was inclined to do so, there was a particular gentleman who was advertising to sell his remarkable success formula to those who had an interest in trying to make some money, sports gambling. Now, what was so remarkable about this man's success is that they advertised or touted him as being a person who who um, had a remarkable and incredible, remarkable success percentage of almost 80%. He was almost 80% correct and against the spread. Where else could you come but here to learn about the spread? And professional sports. Now, what that has to do with is the number of points that a team is given that is an underdog. All right? Like today, Minnesota plays Denver, uh, Minnesota plays Arizona. And Arizona is a 15-point underdog. So what he was saying was that he is 80% accurate when it came to picking the right team with the point spread. You got it? Now, what's fascinating about that is this. 
we've got this little family thing that we do with some other friends, and we all pick uh, teams. It's not for any money, and it's not for any of that. It's just for the, the thrill of, it's for another sin, the thrill of bragging and, and a prideful arrogance. <laughs> so, just so we keep all our sins straight here. Um, <laughs> So the more I thought about it, I was like, now nah, I got to confess before God. I, I, you know, I really want to win because I just want to boast before everybody that's involved in this thing of this incredible knowledge that I have. Uh, but, the, but the point is this. Only 53% of the favorite teams this year covered the spread. Only 70% actually won. If a team was favorite, only 70% of the time did the favorite team win. And only 53% of the time did the favorite team cover the spread. So this guy that's bragging about understanding or picking 80%, that's a pretty remarkable thing as far as human knowledge is concerned. Now, here's the problem I have with all that. This guy is selling this information to people who are content with 80% accuracy. You got it? People call him up, send him money. Tell me something that you know that I know is going to be 20% wrong, but 80% right. If we're flocking to people like that, how much more so should we be turning to the Word of God, which has proven throughout the centuries to be 100% reliable in each and every prophetic prediction that God has written for us in advance? If people are acting upon an 80% accuracy rate, Should we not be acting upon a 100% proven track record? The Word of God is absolutely reliable. And yet some of us still to this day do not take action upon what God says. That is fascinating to me. The point is this, God is never wrong. And this passage is only one of literally thousands of prophetic passages that, or prophecies that we have in the Bible that have proven throughout the history of time to be accurately, 100% of the time, reliable and trustworthy, and yet we still do not act upon it. The Bible says we are to be not only hearers of the word, but doers also. There should never be a time where you come and hear the Word of God that the first thing that you say before God should be this. God, what should I do? I've heard your truth, now how do I apply it? We have become a world that we hear things and go, wow, that was interesting, that was entertaining, that was fun, wow, that was dynamic, he sure was passionate about it, and you know, and we walk out and we never apply any of it. The Word of God is designed to change our lives, to change our hearts. It's truth that should change the way we think. It should change the way that we act. It should change everything life. And it's amazing to me, as we get to know people year after year after year after year, you're still dealing with the same things 10 and 15 and 20 and 30 and 40 years ago when God has given you all the insight and instruction and the wisdom that you need to change your course of action, to change your life. The Word of God is a lamp unto our feet. It shines right where you are and says, you're guilty before God. And a light unto our path that says, now go this way. When are we going to start becoming listeners and doers of the Word of God? We live in a culture where man says 80% of the time, 60% of the time. We have financial counselors that are right 70% of the time because they, can't, they don't know everything. But if you're 70% or 80% accurate, man, you're like God. No, you're not. God's not right 100% of the time. You're not even close. And in fact, God's answer to people who predict the future in the past was, if you were wrong once, you were stoned to death. 
he maintained a very high standard as far as truth was concerned. Now, as we go through all of this, if this isn't enough yet, there's more to come. And what's fascinating is, as we take a look at verses 5 through 20, we're going to look at what basically is a battle between the north and the south. And it's fascinating because, as I said, Ptolemy was in the south. He was a general that took over Egypt. And Seleucus was in the north. He was a general that took over Syria and the northern kingdom. And stuck in between these two warring parties was the nation of Israel, the people of God. And so it was very important to them to understand what was about to take place. So as we go through this, look at verse 5. And I'm going to go through it um, quickly to the point that I want you to understand what's going on. But if you really like history, then dig into it. Grab some biblical encyclopedias and dictionaries and grab some historical books and sit down and read it because it's a fascinating period of time. But the point that I want to make that we cannot miss is this. Everything that Daniel wrote in verses 5 through 20, including everything else that we saw, was written prior to these events taking place. And it was an absolute miraculous work of God showing us that God is completely in control. He knows all things from the beginning to the end. He knows everything and he demonstrates it and he puts it into writing to demonstrate that he is who he claims to be and that's Almighty God who is all-knowing and in control of everything. He is sovereign. So as we look at this battle between the north and the south, basically it's going to focus on these two groups of people, the Ptolemies and the Seleucids, and this is basically what we see in Daniel chapter 11. Look at verse 5. Excuse me. Then the king of the south, which is Ptolemy in Egypt, will grow strong along with one of his princes. And one of his princes was Seleucus I that we see here on the other side of the chart. And uh, basically, he will gain ascendancy over him and obtain dominion. His dominion will be a great dominion indeed. What the Bible is for, for the foreshadowing here that's taken place is that 255 years into this vision that the, the Seleucids or Seleucus, the general, and the, the general in the south, Ptolemy, would get together and they would rise up and fight against a man whose name was Antigonus. And Antigonus would be defeated by these two and Seleucus would end up uh, emerging from this particular contest and he would be the greater of the two, uh, greater of the two generals. And uh, that's basically what we have in verse 5. There's another predictive prophecy. The king of the south, Ptolemy, will grow strong along with one of his princes who was Seleucus, who will gain ascendancy over him, obtain dominion, and his dominion will be a great dominion indeed. Now, after some, of the, after some years, and this is where we're getting to verse 6, it says, after some years, they will form an alliance. And the daughter of the king of the south, Ptolemy's daughter, will come to the king of the north, Seleucus to carry out a peaceful arrangement and that's the way they did things in those days if you had an enemy and you were fighting the best thing to do was well if I can give my daughter to this guy in marriage he'll have more sensitivity toward our people and, and toward our position and so we'll get away, from, get away from all the warring and the fighting that's going on that was the game plan now this is 286 years after the vision and Berenice was the daughter who was given to uh, Seleucus to make this peaceful arrangement, but she will not retain her position of power, nor will he remain with his power, but she'll be given up along with those who brought in and the one who sired her as well as he who supported her in those times. Now let me explain to you very quickly what's going on here. Baroness was given, he was the daughter, she, she was the daughter that was given to the king uh, of the north, the general of the north, Seleucus, and the problem was that this deal didn't work out. And, you know, it sounds like a soap opera. Let me just read to you just a little bit of this. To form an alliance between these two warring families, Ptolemy of Egypt gave his daughter Berenice in marriage to Antiochus Theos of Syria. Antiochus was already married, however, to Laodice, whom he divorced. 
Now, after two years, Ptolemy died, so Antiochus Theus put away Berenice with her son and took back his first wife, Leotus. Now, she, in turn, poisoned Antiochus Theus, ordered the death of Berenice, her son, and then Leotus put her own son, Seleucus Callinicus, on the throne, and that was some kind of juggling act, and it makes the soap opera seem a little bit mild compared to what was going on here. So all of this stuff was going on. Now, what's fascinating about it is, what's the odds of God getting that one right? He did. Verse 7, but one of the descendants of her line will arise in his place. Ptolemy, you, your Jettis. It takes me longer during the week to pronounce these names than it does to grasp what God's trying to say. But one of the descendants of her line will arise in his place and he'll come against their army and enter the fortress of the king of the north and he'll deal with them and display great strength. That's the battle that took place. He avenged the death of his sister. That's what this is all about. And it's taken us down this particular succession of these leaders, these kings that arise in the northern and southern kingdoms. Verses 8 and 9. It says, and also their gods with their metal images and their precious vessels of silver and gold will be taken into captivity to Egypt. And he on his part will refrain from attacking the king of the north for some years. It's recorded that Ptolemy Eugenius took into Egypt a booty of 4,000 talents of gold, 40,000 talents of silver, and 2,500 idols, exactly as God said that he would. In verse 9, he says, Then later, then the latter will enter the realm of the king of the south, but will return to his own land. And that's exactly what took place. He went into, uh, into Egypt... He took back all this booty that he's talking about, took it back to the north, all of the gold, all the idols, all the silver, everything that God said that he would do, he did. Now, what's interesting about this, if you're paying attention, you see the dates that we're now looking at, and we're down to 227 B.C. The starting point, again, was 536 B.C. It's fascinating when you consider the amount of time that is going on. And it continues in verse 10. And his sons will mobilize and assemble a great multitude of forces. And one of them will keep on coming and overflow and pass through that he may gain wage war up to his very fortress. Seleucus Callinicus is the one they're talking about. And the king of the south will be enraged as we see this and go forth and fight with the king of the north. And the latter will rise a great multitude, but that multitude will be given in the hand of the former. And exactly everything that God says will happen, happened according to his word. For the king of the north will again rise, raise a greater multitude than the former, and after an interval of some years, he will press on with a great army and much equipment. Now in those times, many will rise up against the king of the south, the violent ones among your people. Now this refers specifically to the nation of Israel, the people of God. There will be those who will join into the fight, trying somehow or another to free themselves from the mess that they're in when you've got people to your north and people to your south that continue to fight with each other. Guess what? They're doing most of the fighting on top of you. And so they joined in thinking, you know what? If we can help one side or the other defeat the other, then at least we can get out of the middle of this vice grip that we're in. And that's exactly what they tried to do. But notice they tried to do it, and God says this, the violent ones among your people will also lift themselves up in order to fulfill the vision, but what? They will not be successful. And that's exactly what happened. The people of Israel never did accomplish what they set out to do when they either joined the Seleucids in the north or the Ptolemies in the south. Who, whatever party they joined, they ended up still in the same place in the middle and they failed miserably. And it was a time of great suffering, as God said that it would be. But he who comes against him will do as he pleases and no one will be able to withstand him. For he also will stay for a time, here we go, in the beautiful land, or, which is Israel, with destruction in his hand. 
And he will set his face to come with the power of his whole kingdom, bringing with him a proposal of peace which he'll put into effect. He will also give him the daughter of women to ruin it, but she will not take a stand for him or to be on his side. And he's referring specifically to Cleopatra, which is fascinating. Then he will turn his face, and you think about this for a second too. In verse 17, he talked about a woman who would take control, and that is an absolutely phenomenal prophetic uh, prediction by God that a woman would ascend to a position of being king in, in any kingdom in this particular culture at that particular time. It's fascinating. Then he'll turn his face to the coastlands and capture many, but a commander will be put to a stop to his scorn against him wherever he will repay him for his scorn. So he will turn his face toward the fortresses of his own land, but he will stumble and fall and be found no more. Then in his place one will rise who will send an oppressor through the jewel of his kingdom, yet within a few days he will be shattered uh, through neither in anger nor in battle, which is kind of fascinating because he was never he, he was never destroyed by another. He died of, quote, natural causes. Now as we go through this and look at all this, I want you to understand from the time of the vision in 536 to the time of the end of verse 20, you've got a period of 338 years. And everything that God said would happen happened exactly as God said. And the angel that gave the information to Daniel knew that Daniel would never live to see any of it, yet it's recorded for our purposes and our benefit so that we could know that God's word is trustworthy and reliable. Now, as we go through this, I, I guess basically the point of all this is, what do, you know, what do we learn from what we've studied so far? And there's several things that jump out. And I want to kind of tie it all together because this is really what the purpose of understanding this information should be to change the way that we think and should be changed the way that we act. The first thing that, that I learn is this, and I just want to share it with you. If you recall in the Revelation, we saw that Jesus Christ was King of kings and Lord of lords. It was a vision of the resurrected Christ. And what I learned from that is the importance of seeing Jesus Christ for who he really is. We live in a culture that has watered down Jesus to the point of being just a good guy, somebody's buddy. And the problem with that is that is not the Jesus Christ of the Bible. We often hear people who want to excuse their behavior say statements like this, but Jesus wouldn't judge them for what they do. And I want to clarify something for you so that you understand. In John chapter 8, Jesus was confronted by a group of men who caught a woman in the midst of adultery. They were about to stone her to death, and he challenged her accusers by writing in the sand and basically asking the question, he was without sin, throw the first stone. Now the point that he was trying to get across to them was the hypocrisy in their own life as to how they would want God to judge this one individual and not apply the same judgment to them. If you recall, what he said to that woman was a very poignant statement when he said this. Woman, where are your accusers? And and she said, "I, I don't see any. And he said, neither will I accuse you, but go and what? Sin no more. That statement was a judgment statement. He was saying that her actions were wrong before God. But I want you to remember that Jesus' mission his first time around, according to John chapter 3, 16 through 18, was that Jesus came not to condemn this world, but that the world through him might be saved. Because the world had been condemned already. The moment that Adam broke God's command of not eating from that specific fruit was the moment that sin entered the world, and at that time sin brought forth death. The moment that that happened, the world was condemned already. 
We are already condemned before God. Jesus came the first time because God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Jesus came for the specific purpose or mission of saving that which was lost the moment sin entered the world. His task or his mission or his purpose was to run straight from Bethlehem, so to speak, to the cross at Calvary. His purpose was to save this world. We're in that wonderful window of opportunity when we can turn to him and ask for forgiveness of our sins and trust in him to save us from the consequences of our sin. Jesus came to save the world. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. He came to save us from the consequences of sin. Don't ever mistake that and don't ever ever water that down. However, we need to also understand that this same Jesus that came to save us from our sins will one day return in all glory that has been given to him by the Father because he who humbled himself to the point of death, death on the cross, was given a name that was highly exalted. And the name, by the way, has to do with authority. He was given the authority by God himself to do what? That at the name of Jesus Christ, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue will confess that he is Lord to the glory of God. So don't ever mistake the fact that Jesus Christ would never judge us for our sins because people, let me tell you something, he was put on the cross to be be judged by God for our sins and one day he will come to judge us as to whether or not we accepted this gift that he had to offer and if you refuse to accept that gift, you will be judged by Jesus Christ himself for rejecting the sacrifice that he made on your behalf on the cross. He will come again in all of his glory King of kings and Lord of lords, and he will judge the world as to whether or not they accepted the gift that God offered. So don't ever water Jesus down to where he would never condemn somebody for their behavior. He specifically knows that behavior. He knows that it's sin before God. He knows that we're lost before God, that we're on our way to hell. And he entered into this world and took on flesh so that he could die on the cross for our sins, that we can be forgiven through him. So he knows all about sin and hell and judgment. And he knows what there is to come in the future. So he begs you if you don't know him and you've never wanted to believe in him to accept the forgiveness that he has to offer in Jesus Christ. He came to save you from your sins. But there will be a day where he will come and he will judge you for what you did with that decision that you have to make. The second thing is this. That knowing God's only possible through his spirit revealing Jesus Christ to us from the Father. Daniel's friends all all felt the presence of God but they didn't see the revelation of Jesus Christ. They didn't see him for who he was. And they shrunk away from him in terror. Let me tell you something, the same people who reject Jesus Christ today, if he should show, so choose to come back in their lifetime, there will be a day where, man, it's a frightening thing, a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. There will be a day on this earth where men will try to run and hide from the presence of Jesus Christ because of all of his purity and all of his glory and because of his judgment. And they'll want to die and they won't be able to die. And they'll hide in caves and in rocks and they won't be able to flee from his presence. It's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. We live in a culture today that doesn't preach the judgment of God because it's not politically correct. Who cares what's politically correct? What's truth? How much love is there when we hide from people the truth of what God has revealed to us as to what to expect and the world condemns Christians for not being loving? What's more loving? To hide the truth of what's inevitable or to say the truth and tell it for what it is so that they have an opportunity to at least respond to it and they won't be without excuse before God. How can you love somebody and fail to tell them the greatest need that they have in their life? 
is to be forgiven by God and that God answered that need by sending Christ. God loves people and he demonstrated his love for us and yet while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. What's more loving? Telling the truth. We need to speak the truth in love, but you know what? Sometimes the world just doesn't want to hear the truth at all and it doesn't matter how you say it because they're going to look at it as not being very loving. But the truth is loving. The third thing that I learned is the importance of a quiet time and being alone with God. You know, church attendance is one thing and it's important to develop our relationship with God, but I'm afraid that some of us come once a week and this is all that we get. It's kind of like we go to the gas station and we say, just again, we go to church the same way. Just give me an hour's worth of God. And if you go longer than an hour, I'll probably get up and start walking out. But that's it. That's my, you know, that's my God tolerance for the week. And I just want to share something with you that I learned about the life of Daniel. Daniel spent a lot of quiet time alone with God. Three times a day he was committed to go to God in the, in the inner chamber of his room with nobody around and nothing seen and nothing doing. And you know what? See, well, you could come to church because somebody invites you and you can put on a show that, look, I'm going to church with you, blah, blah, blah. But you know what? Where the real relationship with God is developed is when no one else is around and nobody else knows and you close yourself in your room, you close yourself in your office, you open the Word of God, and you begin to read, and you allow God to speak to you, and you pray, and you ask God to reveal wisdom to you, and you want God to reveal Himself more and more every day. And you know what? And that's not a show for people. That's between you and God. See, and that's the life that Daniel had. He wasn't trying to show for other people. He just did what he did, because that's the relationship that he had with his God. And I want to challenge you to consider that. The fourth thing is this. In one of those quiet times I had with God, and this was actually, I was out jogging this week, and I was studying this, putting this all together. And here's, here's a question I have. I don't know if you think like this, but if you do, you know, that's a scary thought to think there's more than one of me that, that's walking around. But, so I'm out running, I'm thinking, okay, God, now, why don't you just name names? You know what I'm saying? A mighty king will arise out of this. Why don't you just say, and Alexander the Great will arise? You know what I'm saying? And I want to say Ptolemy will be the general and Lysimachus and Cassander and, and, and Seleucus. And just, why don't you just name names and eliminate all doubt so that the skeptics can't wiggle themselves out of it? In that quiet time with God, as I was reading through the Bible and studying, and remember I told you God didn't speak to me audibly. He doesn't speak to you either because he'd blow your head off if he did. But in that quiet time, here's what God impressed upon me. The heart of man is rebellious and wicked before God. And if God would reveal the names, which he could have, the problem with man is this. God says so, man says no. The other problem is, is that God specifically teaches, not only is he sovereign or in control of all things, but that man also has the freedom to choose. The greatest argument that man would have against the freedom of choice would be, well, Alexander the Great didn't have a choice, God, because we see his name written right there in Daniel chapter 8 and Daniel chapter 11. He, was, he didn't have any choice to assume that position. You ordained it and you made him do it, and so therefore he has no choice. The wonderful thing about prophecy is this, that God can make it clear to us that he knows everything that's going on. It's so clear that you can't deny the evidence. And at the same time, the Bible teaches God is in control and that man has the freedom to choose. And it protects the integrity of both that's taught all throughout the Bible. Isn't that a wonderful thing? That's awesome. I mean, when you stop and think about it. What, another point is this, and I want to close on this. Christianity is a reasonable faith. It's a reasonable belief system. What that means is, is that we can examine the evidence and come to reasonable conclusions. 
Remember I asked you to keep in mind the prophecies concerning Jesus Christ? There are over 300 prophecies concerning Jesus Christ, and every one of them were fulfilled in that one person, Jesus. Now, what's fascinating about that is, and I want to close with this, because I want to kind of run this by you to make you think about this. These prophecies were written hundreds of years before they actually came to fulfillment. Some people will say, well, you know, any of those prophecies could pertain to anybody. Here's a mathematical study that was done, taking just eight Listen to me, just eight of the 300 prophecies that were to be fulfilled in Messiah, Jesus Christ, the Savior promised by God of the world. I want to read this to you because this is American Scientific Affiliation in the foreword of a book wrote this. The manuscript for Science Speaks has been carefully reviewed by a committee of the American Scientific Affiliation members and by the executive council of the same group and has been found in general to be dependable and accurate in regard to the scientific material that's presented. Okay? He says, the mathematical analysis included is based upon principles of probability which are thoroughly sound and Professor Stoner has applied these principles in a proper and convincing way. Here's what he did. He took eight of the prophecies concerning Jesus Christ and he ran a mathematical probability study as to what the probability was that any one person would fulfill just eight of those 300. Here's what he did. The following probabilities are taken from that book to show that coincidence is ruled out by the science of probability. Stoner says that by using modern science of probability in reference to just eight prophecies, we find that the chance that any man might have lived down to the present time and fulfilled all eight prophecies is one uh, one in ten to the 17th power. That means ten with 17 zeros following that. Now, I had a headache just figuring out how many, what that actually meant. I got down to 14 and I was calling friends. Okay, I got 14 and that's 100 trillion. Okay, 17 is 100 quadrillion. I got to get a life. <laughs> that's eight. 100 quadrillion. Here's how he demonstrates it. He says, suppose that we take 10 to the 17th silver dollars, okay, 100 quadrillion silver dollars, and lay them on the face of Texas. They will cover all of the state two feet deep. Now mark one of these silver dollars and stir the whole mass thoroughly over the state. Blindfold a man and tell him he can travel as far as he wishes, but he must pick up one silver dollar and say that this is the right one. What chance would he have of getting the right one? Just the same chance that the prophets would have of, had, of writing these eight prophecies and having them all come true in any one man from their, from their day to the present time, providing they wrote them in their own wisdom. It says, now these prophecies were either given by inspiration of God, as they claim, or the prophets just wrote them as they thought they should be. In such a case, the prophets had a chance that was one in, uh, in ten to the seventeenth power have, of having them come true in any man but they all came true in Jesus Christ. This means that the fulfillment of these eight prophecies alone proves that God inspired the writing of these prophecies to a definiteness which lacks only one chance in 10 to the 17th power of being absolute. Now, while we may reason that the evidence is overwhelming, reason alone isn't enough to convince us that God's word is true, is it? We must surrender our pride. We must surrender our arrogance before God. 
the evidence reasonably could be overwhelming and any reasonable person would look at it and say that it is. But you see, the greatest stumbling block between you and me and our relationship with God is the sin of pride. We have got to get to the point where we know that we need God. Where we know that we can't do it without Him. Where we know if we died excluded from His forgiveness that we will spend eternity in hell. The Bible very clearly teaches on life and death, good and bad, right and wrong, curses and blessings, and eternity. The point that I want to make for you is this. The evidence of prophetic prophecy being fulfilled is overwhelming as to the truth of God's word being exactly as it claims to be. But the stumbling block or the hindering point is, is that you have to surrender before God and say, God, <laughs> you know, and I don't. When God says that none are righteous, none are righteous. That's what his word says. When God says that all have sinned, all have sinned. When God says he so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whoever would believe in him would not perish, he means exactly as he says. When God says that Jesus Christ is the only way to the Father, he means what he says. When God says the wages of sin is death, and the wages of sin is death. When God says that the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord, then the free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. When God says that you cannot get into heaven by working your way to please God, for it's by grace we've been saved through faith, and not of ourselves. It's a gift from God so that no one could boast. You cannot work your way to heaven. The only way to get there is by believing in Jesus Christ and in Him alone for the forgiveness of your sins. What's the point of prophetic prophecy? The point is to help us to understand that God is absolutely 100% in control and that His Word is trustworthy and reliable. Now can you see why our enemy doesn't want the Word of God taught in our culture today? Because it's only the truth that will set us free from sin. That's why he wants to entertain people. That's why he wants to have more programs that all get away from the teaching and preaching of the Word of God because it's God's Word that's truth. It's God's Word that sets us free. When God says it, he means it. We better pay attention and listen. The point of the matter is very simple. Come, let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, I will make them white as snow. Though they are, they are like crimson, they will be like wool. Fulfilled prophecy is undeniable proof that the Bible is indeed the inspired word of God. Isn't it time you spend a little bit more time reading it? And isn't it time we spend a lot more time doing it? Father, thank you for this time to be together. Your word is amazing. It's just awesome. It's, it's living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. And God, would you deal with us right where we are? God, I pray for those who continue to look for, I need more evidence to believe you, God. I want to believe, but I have so many doubts. The evidence is overwhelming. It's time where you just got to give it up. It's time where you just got to humble yourself before God and just invite Christ into your life and thank him for the forgiveness that you have through him. God, we thank you for your word and what you've said in the past has come true and what you've said about the future will come true exactly as you say because you're not like man. You don't change your mind. You don't change programs. You don't change horses in midstream. What you said is what you've said and you've given us the beginning. You've given us the middle and you've also given us the end. God, thank you and I just pray that we'll become more uh, people that are not only hearers of your word but doers also. And we just thank you and praise you that you loved us enough that you've given us your word, that we have access to all the wisdom of the universe, all the plans of God, everything that we have to look forward to. We just thank you and praise you in Christ's name. Amen.